This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Good morning, radiotherapists, and welcome to this Sunday's edition of Radiotherapy. As usual, we have an action-packed show planned. Our special guest this morning is a guru in telehealth. Hmm. Susan Jury is a public health expert who has consulted everywhere about the benefits of telehealth. Most recently, she set up the Royal Children's Hospital Telehealth Service. We'll ask her whether radiotherapy on 3 can be considered a telehealth initiative, and if so, can we get government funding? Now, there is an idea. Also joining us are two of our old-time favourites... Oh, my goodness. First, we have Perry Partum, Dr Perry Partum, to, to you, a psychiatrist in the world of mother-baby health. Today, Perry is reporting on something unusual, ayahuasca. I had to practice that about 20 times to say it incorrectly like that. And I think post-traumatic stress disorder and all sorts of psych stuff. Before Perry told me about this, I'd never really heard of this ayahuasca, although I've heard about lots of hallucinogens which probably just illustrates what a sheltered life I've led. But today that all ends, for all of us, in fact. Now, also on the panel... Sit, actually, get ready for this. This is exciting. Also on the panel is our very own panel beater. Yes, known to some as the mysterious Kent, who usually operates our desk. I've outed him already. And <laughs> was I meant to do that? No, I was not make, supposed to happen. <laughs> and he makes sure you can actually hear us. Today he turns the tables and shows us how this radio caper is actually done. Panel Beta is going to report on how a country measures happiness and why they should even bother. And last and definitely least, of course, you have me, Dr Doolittle, a vague and disorganised psychiatrist whose special interest is Netflix and occasionally flicking across to the sport. Anyway, sit back, relax and enjoy radiotherapy. Just listen to this. Hey, uh, welcome team. Perry Pardon first up. How are you? Good morning. I'm good, thank you. Aren't you about to change careers, change jobs, have a new life, enter into a new phase, whatever it's called? Yeah, one of those midlife crisis things. Midlife. You only look about 10. Mm. <laughs> are you I mean, excited? It's only going to live for a very short time, doesn't it? Yeah. And uh, panel beta. You got a microphone, man. Use I've got it. a microphone. Dangerous now. I know. You can just take control because you've still got the panel. So you yeah. can just like if, mm. if if we're basically giving you the shits. I could do a bit of Ray Hadley on you. you. Just yeah. turn it down. <laughs> and Susan Jury. Good Welcome. morning. Good morning. Thank Thanks you. for coming on. My pleasure. Did you have any trouble finding us? You know, here in the depths of Brunswick. Oh, well, only because I went on the freeway in the completely wrong direction, so luckily I left enough time to get here. You know, Google does some weird thing on um, on whatever street we're on um, where sometimes people go to the start of... What street are we on, by the way? Blythe and Blythe. Nicholson. Yeah. Sometimes people go to, like, uh, 221 Nicholson. There's some other sort of way the numbers are counted and every once in a while you get this panicked phone call at about, you know, 10 to 10, someone saying, I'm, not, I'm at standing outside and there doesn't seem to be a studio here. Bless so, that blue dot on Google Maps. Yeah, you've got to be careful. Hey, um, why don't we jump straight into it? Because we do have a pack show. Now, Perry Partum over there, mm. you've got to be in your bonnet about a TV show called 13 Reasons Why. Yeah, I do. And I know that you might have a different view because you've also watched it. Well, we I'm only halfway it. through. Yeah, yeah. I've just started. I started because I've been on holidays, mm. so I'm a little bit overexcited. Apologies in advance, and I'm even more vague than usual. So I started watching it on holes, and I actually got a little bit hooked. So I'm up to about ep five. 
Okay, so just for those people who don't know about it, 13 Reasons Why is a series that was released on Netflix on the 31st of March and it's been unbelievably popular. It's been tweeted about, it's been downloaded, or whatever you have to do with Netflix. Uh, you stream. You, we you stream. stream? Okay. Yeah. Things like that I'm good at. Get me on medicine, I'm hopeless. But on things like television, I'm a weird. (laughs) So the basic premise of the story is that it's a retrospective review of this young girl who leaves um, audio tapes of her experiences just prior to, and I don't think this is a spoiler. No, no, no. Okay. She dies by suicide. um, And that's in the first ten minutes of the first episode, so there's no spoiler there. That's right. So um, she leaves these audio tapes. People who are who were around her at the time that she was very distressed uh, then get to kind of review their behaviours towards her and what happened to her leading up to the suicide. And I think that it sparked quite a lot of concern from a lot of different quarters, in fact. Um, Headspace has put out a warning in regard to the graphic nature of the depictions of sexual assault and of suicide. Uh, and I think that there's also been a lot of concern internationally about uh, the way in which it depicts the um, finality or otherwise of ending your life because it's almost as though this girl gets an opportunity mm. to kind of, you know, enact a bit of a revenge against the people who were mean to her. Mm. And and there's some other concerns as well. I mean, I don't know if you want to respond to that point particularly. You know, Steve. I think, I, I, as I say, I'm only halfway through, So, and I'm really reluctant to pass opinion on anything when I haven't fully seen it. So, you know, that in mind, but I must say I am sitting watching the show rather uncomfortable that it does not look like the sort of... Um, lead up and to um, that to a suicide that I normally see in clinical practice. You know, the tapes, well, I've only a few in, so I don't know if she gets depressed and I don't know if she develops mental illness, but, you know, so far it just, it, to me, it jars. Yeah. By episode five, that's my main gripe and I'm wanting to see how it plays out. So I don't oh, want to comment in case it does huh? play out, but so- she looks like just someone, she does not look like someone who's got a, any mental illness at this stage. Do we need to think about it differently than we think about suicide notes? Because you're saying it's an audio tape. Mm. Yes. Is, are there distinctions to be made? Oh, that's a good question. I, I suppose... Um, I don't, I don't reckon know. There, I reckon there would be because a suicide note is traditionally written at the moment in the lead-up in the day or two before. Now, clearly these audio tapes are made. Mm. You would think, you know, there's 13 of them. Each is a half side, 45 minutes, and they're clearly... You know, that's the other thing. They're incredibly produced. You know, like if you had the ability to make... You know, I've sat there a few times and I don't want to sound flippant and silly, but, you know, that sounds like a really highly produced podcast, for example. You know, you couldn't do it in under a month, you wouldn't think so. And that's the other thing that jars on me because, of course, by far the vast majority of suicides uh, have a hugely impulsive element. You know, studies of people who have survived suicides that are very serious attempts like jumping off bridges and stuff like that, the commonest thing that they report if they survive these very serious attempts is that they thought at the last minute was, why did I do this? And they're nearly always a degree of intoxication and stuff like that. So they're incredibly impulsive. And whereas this is incredibly planned, again, not ringing true, but, you know, I'm, so far I'm giving, I'm allowing for, what do you call it, artistic licence? Oh, so that's licence. interesting. So you feel like it's not like the experience that you think is probably what leads up to suicide. So that's that's not the concern that a lot of other people have raised, though they've raised the concern about oh, yeah. glamorising the idea of of suicide as a bit of a, an opportunity to kind of get back at the people who are mean to you. Yep. They've talked about how... There definitely appears to be an element of that in what's yep. going on. Yep. They also talk about how um, there's an incredibly hopeless therapist that she goes to see who's her school counsellor and just doesn't help her Right, anyway. I haven't seen that yet. 
Yeah. So I mean, but how often? How often is our industry portrayed as a bunch of either sex fiends or morons? Yeah. That's what we're portrayed as in the media. <laughs> Typically, shrinks of all varieties: psychologists, social work counsellors, psychiatrists. We're portrayed as morons or sex fiends, mm. and um, you know, most of us are neither. I mean, I'm a moron, obviously, but at least I'm not a sex fiend. Go on. <laughs> so I, I, I share your concern on that point. But the other thing, I suppose, in this. I, I guess refers to what you were talking about earlier, that it doesn't sort of ring true to you, is that the way that they portray her decision-making up to the point where she decides to kill herself is that it all makes kind of logical sense. Like, mm. this person's mean to you, that person's mean to you. You know, if 13 people are mean to you, then clearly the logical consequence of that is that you then take your own life. So I think that people are concerned that uh, if you have a suicidal thought or if you have a series of suicidal thoughts, that that necessarily means that this is going to lead to some sort of logical conclusion where you think about actually acting on them. Whereas suicidal thinking is, you know, something that a lot of people experience. It doesn't necessarily have to mean that you're going to go down that road, that a lot of people who have those thoughts can then recover and lead very full, very happy, very lengthy lives. Mm. So lots of things that people are concerned about. Um, what about the, the... Surely the big thing they're concerned about is copycat. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So copycat suicide being, you know, and this is, copycat suicide is a concept that if you read about suicide, it gives you the idea and you might do something similar and see it as a solution. And that's what led to, for many, many, many years, we didn't report or mention suicide in the media. It was virtually a black hole yeah. in the media. Um, and there was euphemisms used until around about 10, 15 years ago when um, a whole lot of people got together and produced um, media guidelines for how to... Um, talk and report suicide in the media, which say in Australia were, um, were um, the, main, um, the main people behind. And it's on their website. You can read about it anywhere. Just look up media suicide guidelines. That's right. And I suppose the counter viewpoint to that is that um, this series and lots of other discussions of suicide as well give us an opportunity to talk about it in a useful, constructive manner, that we can then point people to places where they can get help, that we can tell people how to respond when someone discloses suicidal thinking to them. And, uh, in fact, there's a couple of um, discussions on the internet where they just give some very, very clear guidelines as to how to respond if someone discloses that sort of thinking to you. Understandably, the, um, the trigger concern is for the replication or the um, copycat aspect of things mm. but and I haven't seen it so but my understanding is that um, it's drawing attention to the behavior of those people around her in her life and that they're in the way that the show unfolds is they're actually reflecting on their behavior does that work like I mean do we are we supposed to as viewers think geez am I part of somebody's problem yeah I think well that's the stated intention so because of the very substantial backlash against this particular series. The writers have actually written a bit of a manifesto about their decision-making behind, you know, writing and then producing such a very confronting series. Uh, and that's part of it, that, um, you know, you need to think hard about what you do. What you do and say has implications and impacts on other people that you might not be able to foresee. Mm. And so things like bullying at school and, and other ways in which people are victimised really have powerful effects and you need to be careful. So I think mm. that's a positive message as well. And the other thing that is worth mentioning that, of course, comes out of those, those Media Australia saying guidelines is that whenever you talk about suicide, it's important to raise the issue that it could be distressing for people and if, um, you know, this conversation or any conversation has concerns, you need to be aware that there's a whole lot of good places you can go to to get information. Do you want to read those out? Yes, I will. So Harry, pardon? if you need to talk to someone, uh, you can call Lifeline Australia on 131114, Beyond Blue Australia on 1300 22 4636, or Headspace, and that's one eight hundred six five zero 
8890. And you know what that also raises for me? I've just realised, I've watched five of the episodes. I don't think Netflix is doing that. I don't think they're putting up any message afterwards. Well, they don't or am I, f- I suppose they're... Yeah, they're international, they're not Australian. No, but they're still, um, they've still got subscribers in Australia and there's a, an Australian company running the Netflix arm. Um, as far... Look, I always, you know, on Netflix... I mean, I feel like I'm advertising Netflix, but on all of these streaming services at the end, you have the opportunity to flick to the next episode or change before you watch the credits. So it's more than possible that they're putting them after the credits and I'm a credit skipper. I'm a, I, I skip the credits, I'm sorry to say. I don't, read, I don't read the names of all the wonderful people who are behind various shows, which I should, I know, but... So I wonder if they do, but it does raise that issue. They should be doing that. They should be putting up the warning um, either before or after the show. Maybe they are and I've just missed it. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia. Um, I'm Dr Doodle. We've got panel beta on the panel and also on the mic. We have Dr Perry Parton over there in the corner just to give you a visual. And sitting to my left to complete the visual is Susan Jury, who is a New Zealand and United States registered nurse, has a Master's of Public Health degree and a graduate certificate in e-healthcare from the University of Queensland. She's worked all over the place, New Zealand, Hong Kong, China, Australia. And within the telehealth arena, Susan has delivered a range of private consultancy services and educational packages. For the last all oh, four or five years, she set up and ran the Royal Children's Hospital Telehealth Program and more recently has been headhunted to Peter Mack to do the same there. I threw in the headhunted bit. Um, so, uh, g'day again, Susan. Hello. That's so nice to have you in here. I'm so excited about telehealth because I put on the Facebook page, you know, is medicine about to be Ubered? Is medicine about to be Airbnb'd? Are we turning digital? And I know it's, you know, I reckon we've been slow. Tell us the breadth of what telehealth is. What is telehealth? Well, telehealth isn't anything new. It's been around since... um 1891 when the Children's Hospital got their first telephone and um, 1891 1891 was the first phone at the Children's Hospital and sometimes I wonder whether people were on the radio talking about using the new telephone for telehealth back in the 1890s. We would have been. Yeah. Radiotherapy. Guess what we everyone? We would have been there. Yeah. <laughs> um, if, anyone's li- if anyone can advocate to Medicare to get Triple R funded for um, telehealth I think you should. You should. <laughs> yeah. So, so what, what, give us an idea of the range. It's much more than just a telephone now, obviously. So telehealth is essentially health at a distance. And um, in, um, around the world, it could be anything from um, email to telephone to home monitoring. Um, in Australia, we typically tend to refer to it as video consulting because Medicare introduced funding for that in the last few years. But um, the scope of it is huge. Anything where the clinician and the patient aren't right together. Mm. Uh, so um, do you include in telehealth all the various things like all the other digital stuff like for example I've seen um, these little uh, sensors that you can put under the skin that can measure um, physical sure. things like for example your, you know blood chemistry for and sure. stuff like that in real time does that all fit into the same digital arena it, it, it does and um, there's no kind of set definition for what is telehealth but um, you're talking about home monitoring and it's a huge potential business you can see Apple and other industries trying to tap in there and um, it, we're at the absolute tip of the iceberg for where it's going to be heading in the future. Well that's the question I'd like to know the answer to. I mean how, how, how widespread is it apart from at the Children's Hospital? Are there other places that have taken it up and how many kind of remote communities are using it at the moment? Well when you look at um, 
uh, Australia, for example, it's been around in places like Queensland and Northern Territories for some time because of that tyranny of distance. There's been that real driver in demand. So they've really got very well-established telehealth. In Victoria, it's more new because we don't have quite the distances. But what that's meant is that we've kind of come in with the advent of web-based technology and um, people having iPads, iPhones and getting increasingly used to using FaceTime and things that um, we've kind of... We're more new to the game, but we're also using more modern technology and much more accessible to your average person. Um, in Victoria, our telehealth is often to patients in their homes. Um, they don't have to go even to their local health service. They can, if that's appropriate, or they can be at home, which makes it incredibly in and increasingly convenient. What, besides the obvious, that you can't touch somebody and um, um, deal with them in that way, what can't you do in telehealth? Well, I guess, um, you know, as you, as you say, there's, um, th there can be a kind of a slight psychological barrier as well because mm. there's, um, sometimes it can be a little bit more difficult to make that rapport. Some people are very comfortable with using telehealth, but it's more about what can you do. And sometimes people think of telehealth as being second best to a face-to-face -face consult, for example. But um, in my experience, it's often better because, first of all, the convenience um, for the family or the patient to not have to travel, but um, also that can be an enabler like in psychiatry for example um, in young and adolescent people who have let's say got quite severe anxiety disorders traveling down on a train by two hours from the country to come and sit in a clinic room to see a psychiatrist they're incredibly anxious by the time they get to that clinic room by telehealth they're um, they might be in their bedroom and they're much more comfortable the psychiatrist can see their environment they can get a sense of their family in their home and maybe meet siblings and so on yeah, so it's like actually, a home visit exactly and so it can actually be better than a um face-to-face -face consult another example in anesthetics for example can I, before you go into yeah. anesthetics i just want to echo that so i know a few people doing it psych picked it up you know, about, I don't know, it must be at least five, if not ten years ago. When very, did the very, item number come in? Very early um, adopters. And so a whole lot of people have been doing it. And so I've, and I've looked into doing it myself I, for a little while and I'm very keen to set it up in my service at my hospital too. So I've looked into it a lot and I've spoken to heaps of people who are doing it, um, including some patients who I've seen who are, have been part of it. And um, I've, got, I've been really amazed at the positive feedback. A lot of people say they actually prefer it heaps to being in the room and they say they just all that stuff they just feel so much more comfortable mm -hmm. not being stared at they can still you know so it's a slightly different experience but they um prefer it um i know a lot who do things like group therapy at home so one of my relatives she logs on at um in the evening she's told me all about it logs she so she's seen her therapist face to face but her therapist does oh, a couple of nights a week an evening thing there's some guided imagery around mindfulness there's other people on then there's sort of a guided discussion then there's opportunity for one-on-one. -on -one. She gets an email um, the next day. Um, she still has an appointment, but much less frequent. Um, so it's sort of like this whole package of, you know, some group stuff, some guided imagery, some um, goals, plus the face-to-face -face stuff. It, it's, there's so many options. That's amazing. So can she actually see the other participants if there's a group? Or can she, is she aware of their contributions, maybe hears them? I think she's aware of their contributions, but she can't see them. She wow. can only... I don't know if she can see them. I haven't asked her that. You can have either way. Yeah, I mean, there's you can lots do of different ways prefer. of setting it up. It depends on what people are comfortable with. I've got a friend, actually, who has a therapist from Russia, and um, <laughs> then she has a, he, they have a translator from Sydney. She's in Melbourne, and it's quite transformative for her because she 
has access to this amazing person that she could never have access Just to. Just imagine if you can't, speak, if you know English is your second language, you yeah. could get your therapist from any country in the world. So not only reduce the tyranny of distance, also reduce the tyranny of communication. So that raises a bit of a concern for me. <laughs> Just because of you know accreditation and standards and sure. and methods, I think that's a big issue. Yeah, I'm sure we sure. have to work through those things. But yeah. um, given that currently, if you speak certain languages, you can't speak to anyone, no matter how well accredited they are. It's better than it's better than that. We have patients currently who we can't get a trans, you know, say have a particular Chinese dialect, yes. and we can't get a translator. Yes. So I'd rather them log on <laughs> and get someone that, and you know, and I'm sure we can overcome those regulate, regulatory yeah. things if we if we make the effort. Yeah, but I think we need to be aware of the pitfalls as well because like, you wouldn't want to expose people to kind of dangerous therapies or you know to have uh, unaccredited. Says, says, says the panellist who's about to talk about hallucinogens yeah. later in the show. <laughs> in a very safe and controlled environment. Did you have a question there, Kent? Uh, can I get your name right? Panel beta? Panel beta, yeah. yeah. <laughs> the cover's blown. Um, I'm really curious about whether uh, people are recording these things. Uh, that's a good question. Mm. And um, sometimes people ask about recording and we tend to advocate uh, no and we encourage people not to. However, if you're in a face-to-face -face consult, you could also record that and people increasingly mm. do with their iPhones. As a clinician, you can be slightly more vulnerable because you don't necessarily know if they're recording. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, it puts people a little bit more on the spot or clinicians, for example. Um, Is there an upside to that? I mean, shouldn't we be yeah. highly self-conscious about advice and, and how we take advice. For, for and, sure. Yeah. And I think it's about being open. And so um, ideally asking and making sure that checking in that everyone knows if you are recording it. Mm. We as um, a health service, we don't keep the recordings. The issue becomes how do you store that, who's able to retrieve it and so on. So as we don't record face to face, we don't mm. record a video. Do you have the capability of that? Did you have the capability of that at the children's? Um, the platform that we use that is custom built for health and it has that it possibility, has the, I know but I read we about turn it, it off. You turn, we it, turn off, it off, right? We don't enable it. You know, it's a really interesting side question. They do it in the United States because it's... And there's a whole lot of research. You know, the obvious area is when you get told your diagnosis. So say you're going to see mm. your doctor and you're being told that you've got cancer. The commonest thing any human does is they shut down a little bit. They almost dissociate. And if you question people after their initial interview when they've been told their diagnosis, the amount of stuff that they remember or remember incorrectly, it's a real problem. So there's a whole lot of trials around the world World where they've um, where they record it purposefully and they mm. tell you everyone knows mm. it's recorded and a lot of the health um, platforms have it built in like the ones that the children's do I know and so when you walk out you get given a little USB stick with the recording you can take it home listen to it again and hear exactly what the um, doctor or nurse said you can um, if you choose let your family listen to it and so you know and there's massive benefits to it but of course everyone's a little bit anxious about it but of um, the other thing that either point out, of course, people could be recording our face-to-face -face, exactly. um, interviews all the time without us knowing. They could just flick the iPhone on or their Samsung or whatever platform they're using Absolutely. as they walk in. Um, and it is a lot for us to get used to because it makes us nervous if we know we're being recorded. But by the same token, we've got to get used to it. <laughs> and I think, um, Steve, that mentions... Um, sorry, Dr Doolittle, that... Um... <laughs> That's my first name, Steve Doolittle. Yeah. Doolittle's my surname. People mistake it all the time. They think it's my first name. <laughs> it's very confusing. Um, it, it raises what we were talking about before about 
where the uptake is of telehealth and you might think that it's the young doctors or the young clinicians who are used to FaceTime and Skype and everything else that um, embrace telehealth but my experience is often it's the people that are a bit more the doctors that are a bit more exper or who are more experienced and more confident in their own competence and clinical skills who are much more embracing of the technology. Yeah so just on skills I mean is it as simple as if you've got a good bedside manner you're going to be good at telehealth? Yeah, I don't think it's hugely different. Different. I think there's a little bit more difference, like um, building the rapport um, can be a little bit more tricky. Often we use video or telehealth for um, known patients um, where there's already that rapport built. Um, there's a few basic kind of technical like eye contact and right. that kind of thing and a small troubleshooting, but it's not major. Is there any um, uh, specific training to telehealth these days? Um, I do my best to try and um, rec look at it like business as usual and it's just another way of offering a service it mm. enables lots of new models of care as well but I don't want to make it too intimidating and remove that fear factor and the, as I mentioned before the platform we use that's built for health is very intuitive for both patients and for for um, health healthcare professionals hey that reminds me I cut you off when you were about to say something about anesthetics before and um, telehealth and it reminds me because what about those specialties where examinations particularly important? See, in psychiatry, examination's important, but it's not the cornerstone. You know, a lot of our examinations visual. We're saying anaesthetists will probably want to examine a patient, check their blood pressure. How do they go? Yeah, well, um, there's a there's a couple of things in that because first of all, um, uh, psychiatrists are very early uptakers of um, telehealth, but also cardiology has um, been using it for a long time. And everyone thinks that a cardiologist always puts a stethoscope on a chest, but they don't necessarily. Um, um, additionally, telehealth can often be with a local healthcare professional, a local GP, or so on, and. Um, they might be involved in the examining, um, also getting tests done and results and that kind of thing. Can I just um, point out there, so what happens there, from what I understand, correct me if I'm wrong, the patient goes to their local GP clinic in the country, they jump on and see the telehealth specialist in the city, the yeah. GP does all the rest of the stuff locally, order the tests, yes. and so it's a sort of a combined consultation, face-to-face -face perhaps with the GP, um, you know, the cardiologist or whatever, 150 thousand million miles away in another country in <laughs> Russia with no regulations and um, the patient next No, door. exactly right. We'll get back to the um, anaesthetist but um, you're right and the, the great advantage of having a consult with a local GP is that first of all you have that learning and uh, that learning experience you also have that shared care experience because GPs often find they refer um, patients into a hospital and then they get lost in the abyss of the hospital and they never come out again um, whereas now that um, GP is part of the care team and then they can do the follow-up care as well so it helps to keep people out of hospital and in in the care of their GP um, so that's a great new model of care that telehealth offers. But going back to the anaesthetist for a second is that, um, again, going back to paediatrics, for example, is um, our anaesthetist would use it for pre-admission clinic for um, assessing that someone's fit for surgery. They usually do it, they might do a phone call, let's say the kid's in Tasmania, and from a phone call speaking to mum, mum says, yeah, Jimmy's great and um, very healthy and everything as well. Um, kid comes into hospital and then you realise that um, actually the child's got a fairly significant physical disability that has an impact on surgery and yep. anaesthetics. Through video, they have a much bigger picture of... Which is why you just don't want to do telephone alone. Because yeah. I know some yeah. people in the psych area tell me they really don't mind telephone at all. They've got used to it. I know someone who runs a clinic in far north Queensland from yeah. Victoria. And um, they do it as part of a funded model for a particular group of high need where they've got expertise. But, um, hey, I just think this is so fascinating and fantastic. But... We've got other things that we have to talk about as well. <laughs> so we're going to keep going. But thank you, Susan. You're going to stick around and keep chatting about all these other topics anyway. Certainly.
listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia. Another, by the way, while I'm doing by the ways, don't forget to check out our Facebook page, Radiotherapy on RRR. No. Radiotherapy at Triple R, forget. <laughs> Just put Radiotherapy Triple R, you'll find us. We're on Facebook. We announce everything we're doing. We put links to the show. We um, sometimes whack up stories in between times too, just that are of a general health interest. And we appreciate feedback and commentary. So, uh, anytime. Um, we've just, you've just been listening to us chat about telehealth with Susan Jury from now Peter Mac, ex Royal Children's. And we also have Dr. Perry Parton, our child adolescent, um, no, sorry, mother baby psychiatrist. Extra qualifications, Dr. Oh, no, David. Thank you very much. I almost grew you up. <laughs> <laughs> and Panel Beta, our trusty expert on all things, really. What is your expertise? Public health, just all things public health? No, my expertise. Yeah, what is your expertise? She's used the term loosely, but, um, well, if you ask the students, they think that I teach them global studies stuff. Right. Yes, that's and that's general where, rubric. Is that the word? Yeah. That's your general. I guess your for the academics key. among us, we probably call it political sociology. Which academics? Well, I mean, the audience. Right. Political sociology. And so today you're t- tapping, touching on a topic that is very much mm. in that domain. Yeah. In fact, that's how I came across it. So, did you know there's a International Happiness Day? I heard. I heard. And when Susan walked in, she seemed to know all about it. I heard you even quoting countries. Bhutan. Oh, Bhutan. Well, Bhutan yes. comes into the story, absolutely. So there is an International Day of Happiness and it's March 20 each year. I try and avoid it, yep. personally. I just think it's overrated. <laughs> Happiness? Yeah. yeah. Um, and since 2011, um, the UN has been releasing a, uh, a World Happiness Report and it tries to address happiness at a population level, um, obviously interviewing individuals but then reporting it at a population level to create some kind of comparative model for um for countries and yep bhutan were part of the trigger of this and the prime minister of bhutan um initiated uh some measurement for bhutan alone um that has been subsequently adopted they were the first country to not entirely replace but certainly prioritize their nation's happiness over their nation's GDP. Ah. GDP being the gross domestic gross product. Gross domestic product. Their turnover. Yeah. So, in other words, the premise is that, you know, if happiness is um, uh, established, why does it matter whether you're rich or not? Ah, so, the shrinks took over from the economists in well, Bhutan. Well, you know, th- that would be one way of looking at it. I think one of the um, those who might um, take a, a critical view of this might think that it's placating the masses if you tell them they're happy and they don't need money you might be able to get away with other public policy ah uh-huh. would be would be the you know there's the political science uh-huh. coming out. yeah um so we'll come to that. what do you need education for what do you need hospitals for you yeah, got a smile on your that's face that's right you're happy well we'll come to that because there's a real i think there's a sting in that tale um so the 2011 uh, annually world happiness report um, it's data collected from over 150 countries, so not every country, but a pretty um, substantial number. And it's a combination of data that's collected out of a global Gallup poll that goes around and asks pretty straightforward questions around just how happy are you, I, you know, on a scale and all of this sort of thing. Um, and then it marries that data with a whole lot of other indices that we'd be familiar with, including economic and, and others. Things like housing, education, yep. cost of living, how much a loaf of bread... All that sort of business. Yep. So the variables are um, the, the economic, the GDP, gross domestic product per capita, um, social support uh, matters, um, uh, healthy life expectancy mm-hmm. comes into it, uh, freedom to make life choices. So distinct from democracy, 
freedom to make life choices. It's curious. Mm -hmm. um, generosity, like you know, so how, um, I guess that's similar to social cohesion type questions. I love generosity when it's directed at me. And then, and then here's, a, here's a kicker, perceptions of corruption. So it doesn't measure in objective sense corruption, it's perceptions of corruption. That's interesting too. Yep. Corruption's so hard to measure. Corruption, it's, it's such a tough one. Well, yeah, but you can, yeah. you can see why it uh, links to happiness, I, mm. I think. Um, I should say there's a, happiness in, is obviously uh, a, a loaded term. In the language that sits behind the report, it actually draws on a World Bank um, euphemism, if you like, which is called subjective well-being is how happiness is defined subjective in, for these purposes. Okay, I can wear that. Although that sort of takes into account health measures as well, whereas I think of happiness as more psychological. So whereas subjective well-being would be, to me, a layperson, um, a mix of happiness and how well I feel physically. I think, yeah, yeah, for sure. I think the reason they go with the label subjective uh, well-being is it's like a, it's a, it's a get-out-of-jail clause for some of the issues with doing the comparative work. You know, they're recognising up front that it's subjective. A curious aspect of the comparative aspect is... A curious aspect of the... Yeah. I know yeah. what um, you're talking about. What do you call it when you... Do, it's alliterative? No, what do you... When you, you, know, you say I think I was just mumbling. Like I love, I love. <laughs> I was impressed. Um, so when they've got all this data, it's um, in the first instance, it's uh, collected and compared to this uh, hypothetical country called dystopia. Is that right? There's a hypothetical country for the purposes of this report called dystopia. I'm so disappointed. Oh, awesome. I'm so disappointed it's hypothetical because I wanted to visit. <laughs> I wanted to visit. Yeah, I wanted to go on a holiday so I could come back and feel even better. Is there a place Being a dystopia, but I'm back in utopia. Thank you, Melbourne. <laughs> place without a postcard. Um, yeah, and um, so they get all this data and then they um, put it in, mix it up, and then they uh, release the report. The report, um, I told you there was a day, it was March 20, so it's just recently, and so the 2017 one came out and... Um, Gee, that's pretty quick. gets out quick. Or is that the day it's released each year? It's released each oh, year I on March 20. it was the day it was collected, you know. That's, oh, <laughs> that's right. That would be fun. Yeah, okay. <laughs> did it before um, morning tea. Particularly vague today. Yeah. Apologies. Go um, ahead. So the 100 and ended up uh, ranking 157 this year. And um, Australia, you'll be pleased to know, made the top 10. Yes, the we're so competitive in Australia. <laughs> yes, top ten. <laughs> Who cares about soccer in the World Cup? <laughs> happiness, top ten. Yeah, happiness in top ten. Um, so at number nine, um, the big news. In. The big news was um, uh, Norway took over from Denmark. You know, so the Scandies um, had a little oh, bit of you know, bragging Norman, rights. So you know, they're so smug. Yeah, oh, we have the best education, yeah. the best <laughs> healthcare, and we're the happiest. Can I and ask a we question? Speak in a funny yeah. accent. Sorry, just just in regard to where Australia sits and the whole competitiveness aspect of it, have we gone up in the rankings or have we gone down? We've in the been rankings? pretty steady around okay. that middle of the top ten, um, and I think quite literally we were nine in last year okay. as well. And I'm curious to know, where do we fit with New Zealand? Ah, New Zealand? <laughs> yeah, you've got to decide whether to, where, where to stay. <laughs> well, you're going to be very happy New Zealand came in one above us at eight. Wow. Yeah. Oh, that makes it a yeah. tough choice. What, what gets Australia to nine? You know, like on those indices, is it, is it that we're more happy, our economics, our GDP, our what, of those various indices, is there a bias in terms of where we score high? Well... It's, it's all of them. I mean, oh, you know, it's yeah. it just across the board. And I think where you're starting to go with that line of thinking is one of the issues with it. You know, the one thing that all those 10, top 10, let's just go with the top 10, have in common is that they're all rich. So if they're all rich, does the premise that money doesn't make you happy um, hold? Like, what's the correlation well, the becomes the, the investigative question. 
Well, yeah. the premise does too relate to individuals. And, you know, and that's been studied in depth, and I don't want to bore everyone, but in a nutshell, money make, your happiness increases for an individual up to around about, on current wages, around about 110, yeah. 120,000 a year. Above that, there's no, no further benefit yep. to your happiness, and in fact, there's some you know, various risks. But um, so it's capped. I, I, I'm reminded of Spike Milligan's quote about um, money and happiness. He said, um, he said, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm fairly certain that money won't make me happy, but I'd really like to find out for sure. <laughs> <laughs> oh, um, so the thing that they've all got in common is that they're rich, and all the things. Oh, the US, by the way, uh, 14th, right, and they're dropping. So, I mean, that that sort of problematises the discussion about wealth and happiness, doesn't it? Because, yeah. I mean, maybe the ones in the top ten are actually all about uh, a bit more social cohesion, maybe less disparity between the most rich and the most poor. Do you think that that comes into it at all? Absolutely, yeah. I, 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 look, I'm pretty uncomfortable with the attempt to rank it this way. Um, is that what you're getting at? The Well, um, no, I was kind of more thinking about um, what is it about those top ten nations, aside from the fact that they're rich, because there are other rich nations like the US that don't make it into that group. Maybe there are other social factors which are having a bigger effect on people's subjective well-being. Okay, yeah. So one of the so the USA has been on a, on a gradual decline and it's now at 14, so it's still really high. Yeah, it's it'll still, be about still 50 <laughs> soon, given its recent events. But, yeah, well, this is right. So this data was collected over the, you know... Um, notable period of time over the our summer, so the election and, and so on. And one of the dramatic indices that changed was the perception of corruption. Mm. And so that had a, had a bit of an effect. Um, but, um, and, and therefore, no surprising that the, the, the most unhappy countries, all countries who are at war or have been recently at war and completely dystopian. So just to finish up then, do you think it's reasonable to base public policy on results such as this? Yeah, well, these guys, the UN and the World Bank clearly does because that's one of the, like if you go to the website, one of the primary justifications is it's supposed to be uh, to inform public policy. Um, and I don't know if it, if it really can lay that claim. I think that's where the, the debate maybe for another day comes in. But it, it's that's its utility apparently. Because it's interesting, I've never heard, say, Malcolm Turnbull get up and say, we're going to make changes to uh, negative gearing because we think it'll impact happiness. Um, in a great way on our happiness. But I'm profile. sure he's listening this morning. <laughs> he probably, that's right. No, he's probably texting me already. Yeah. I'll just check my phone. Yeah, no, no, not there. Yeah. Um, David Cameron, I don't know, I didn't check the status of this, but David Cameron, before he was no longer the David Cameron we came to know and love, um, he started paying attention to the happiness index um, in a couple of his speeches, parliamentary speeches, in relation to the, the you know, state of the nation type type conversations. And you look peripartum like you have a burning question. Oh, no, well, I, I guess I just think this conversation is really interesting and I can talk about hallucinogens another time. If no, you no, 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 we want to hear about hallucinogens. Oh. We've promised it and um, we've uh, got a giveaway of hallucinogens. That's a joke, <laughs> people. Do not ring in and complain and say I'm pushing drugs. Hey, you're listening to Radio <laughs> Therapy. complain that you don't get any, yeah. otherwise. <laughs> Three, triple, ah. We were chatting away furiously there, engaged in a deep debate about hallucinogens when all of a sudden we realised, whoops, the ads are over and it's time to come back. That's, That's right. what it's all about. But it's time to incorporate you, the listener, into that conversation about hallucinogens. Now, Perry Pardon, this is your baby, so to speak. <laughs> OK. Well, so I, I probably should explain why I'm interested in these 
uh, drugs at the moment. I did a segment on radiotherapy a couple of weeks ago about ketamine and depression and I found that pretty interesting but all of the research that I found also referred to all these other hallucinogens and their use these days in other ways of treating mental health problems like post-traumatic stress disorder, like uh, anxiety problems, mm-hmm. like OCD, like substance abuse disorders, all conditions that perhaps we struggle with really addressing properly um, with the treatment modalities that we've got available at the moment. So people are looking a little bit um, into left field to try and find something that maybe works a bit better, that might change people's experience and give them an opportunity to recover from what are often really um, debilitating illnesses. So um, I'll start talking about ayahuasca. So that's been in you the news. You pronounced it so beautifully, ayahuasca. <laughs> I don't even know if that's right. <laughs> yeah, well, my... yeah, we're probably butchering it, people. Sorry, but we'll, <laughs> we'll, we'll soldier on. Yep. Uh, it's been in the news recently. Caught my eye. There was an article in The Guardian uh, talking about war veterans going to the Amazon uh, to drink this particular brew, which uh, they hoped would help them recover from the trauma that they experienced during their war. Um, and there was another very sad story a year or two ago about a tourist who then killed another tourist while he had a psychotic episode, um, which might have been as a result of the ayahuasca that he took or perhaps all the other things that he took at the same time. Mm-hmm. So I might talk firstly about what exactly it is. It's a combination of the vines of one plant and the leaves of another plant, the combination of which seems to create a unique if- effect in the brain. And we think the way it happens is... The leaves contain a hallucinogen which is called DMT or dimethyltryptamine and the vine contains a monoamine oxidase inhibitor. So we use monoamine oxidase inhibitors in uh, psychiatry. We understand their mode of action fairly well. They're a class of antidepressant. Yeah, exactly. Um, And anti-anxiety. And what seems to happen is the monoamine oxidase inhibitor uh, prevents the hallucinogen from being broken down in the peripheral uh, in the body uh, before the effects have um, a chance to reach the central nervous system. And it's the central nervous system effects, obviously, that you're interested in. Do, is it much different to LSD or other hallucinogens? They're all in the same class. Uh, I suppose uh, the combination of these two um, elements is what makes it unique. Uh, and in fact, it doesn't have to be these specific vine and this specific leaf. In fact, other people around the world have used different um, herbs and other... Spices. Uh, <laughs> spices. <laughs> Leaves and vines. I'm such a in chemist. A I really should become a chemist. <laughs> uh, in fact, when I was looking up uh, reading about this, it turns out that there are quite a, a few species of acacia, an Australian native species, which are very high in DMT. And so uh, people can use those those uh, plants in order to create their own version of this ayahuasca. But it's been used for centuries in South America, particularly uh, as part of a spiritual experience associated with religious ceremonies. Yep. So um, people go to South America, they have an experience that is facilitated by a shaman, they drink the tea that's been made out of these two elements and they sit on a plastic mattress with a bucket by their side because one of the things that always happens when you take ayahuasca is you vomit. Just sounds so pleasant. <laughs> Going for a whole lot, I'm going to sit on some plastic with a bucket so I can vomit. <laughs> and Might you take know, photos and put them on Facebook. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and also have a transcendental experience, which yeah. is the whole point. So Great. Transcendental vomiting. Yeah. <laughs> that's the name of my next punk band. <laughs> So what is supposed to happen after you take the tea is that you have sort of an acid feeling in your stomach. You feel this sort of sense of tingling and sometimes hot and cold sensations on your skin. 
you start to yawn, you have this desire to close your eyes and then you have these visual images that arise and they're associated with quite strong emotional experiences as well. Uh, and sometimes the experience is enhanced by hearing melody. So there's a whole lot of sensory alterations that occur in a sort of a series of waves of intensity that last up to about six hours after you've taken the drug. And I think the critical aspect of this which makes it different from some of the really unpleasant psychotic experiences that people might have um, not as a result of taking a drug but perhaps if they've experienced a psychosis is that uh, you can bring yourself out of it very easily by focus on, focusing on your external world. So people can open their eyes. Yep. So you can bring yourself out of it. That's a key difference. The other key difference every time I've read about it is a sense of euphoria as well. They say the drug, as well as causing hallucination, causes euphoria, which, of course, you don't get if you suffer from a psychotic disorder. You no. don't feel euphoric. You just have horrible hallucinations telling you nasty things usually. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And the other thing that is notable about the euphoric experience is that it seems to be sustained over the subsequent day or two. And some studies say for some people up to sort of 21 days. So they have been thinking about using it in the same way that they use ketamine to kind of relieve treatment-resistant depression, but it's not been as well studied in that regard as ketamine. When you raise the issue of euphoria, then I wonder, is it addictive? Ah, so actually it's been used to treat addiction, interestingly. Yeah, yeah. yeah so the, and the hallucinogens in general rank very lowly on the addiction scale. There's okay. sort of an internationally recognised scale of addiction. It goes from, I think, zero to, oh, I forget, zero to two or zero to three, I forget. And like heroin's right up the top, cigarettes are about two-thirds of the way up, uh, marijuana's about a quarter of the way up, hallucinogens are down around marijuana, vaguely from memory. Check it up on the internet if you want. I haven't read it for a year or two, but that's my vague right, memory. Most right. hallucinogens aren't overly addictive. And they've been trialled, in particular around Europe, um, they're really, they've been trialling hallucinogens for the last 30 years in Europe where they're a little bit more open with these things and they don't have a so-called war on drugs. Um, um, they've been trialled in lots of things, haven't they? PTSD, depression, yep. end-of-life yep. care, yes. um, psychotherapy. Of course, they've also got a bit of a dodgy history. You know, um, some weird um, therapists over the years have, you know, cult-like have used various drugs like this to, um, in strange ways. Yeah, that's right. And that's because um, in addition to the euphoria that you mentioned and the kind of strange images that people experience, they also experience this kind of transcendence. So they have uh, a new perspective on their life and what their experiences have been in the past and what the significance of those experiences have been. And it seems to allow some people to overcome their distress at their past experiences and see their life in a different manner, um, both an intensely emotional experience and also a distancing one. So uh, I think that uh, that is something also that is retained even after the acute effects have subsided. And that's why people, you know, veterans with war trauma really want to have the opportunity to see if they can overcome those experiences. I suppose um, there's a downside, obviously. I'm worried about the possibility that it could trigger psychosis uh, mm -hmm. because there have been case reports of, of that in the past. They're pretty rare though, aren't they? They're, they're, like, there's been 29 out of how many people? <laughs> uh, like, you know, maybe 50,000. <coughs> um, so, yeah, you know, small, yeah. small. I suppose my perspective on this is any 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 possible risk is a risk, you know. Espe especially if you're provo promoting it for medical treatment. Yeah, that's If you're right. doing it as some just holiday experience, you can take your risks. But if you're promoting it as a treatment, you have to absolutely know the negative effects so that you can give um, patients, people, a balanced perspective on what the treatment might offer. That's exactly right. So even though this is obviously not a, a, a medical uh, intervention, if people who go 
down to South America to try ayahuasca are advised not to if they've got a history of psychosis or a family history of psychosis. And they're also advised to stop any antidepressants or other medications that might have an effect on serotonin in the brain. Which brings me, but I don't think I'm going to have time to talk about it, about the brain effects of, of this particular drug. You might have to save it for another time. Maybe. Can you summarise it in, tw- in 20 seconds? It acts on the serotonin H, uh, so the 2A receptor. Um, and we think that that's, that's also the receptor that's targeted in other interventions. But it seems to have a uniquely... Um, if um, I can't talk about it in two minutes. I will come back to it perhaps down the track because I think it's that's really good. interesting. That's the enough. You've that given on... people a teaser. <laughs> You've <laughs> given them a reason to come back to radiotherapy next Sunday. Right. Hey, which reminds me, we have to finish up because it's 10.59 on the old clock and we're going to hand over to the marvellous people of Einstein Gogo. Um, but first up, before we do that, Susan Jury from Peter Mac, telehealth expert, thank you so much for coming in on a Sunday morning and giving up your time. Thank you for inviting me. It's been fun. Panel beater, you've turned the tables, you've gone from panel operator to panel beater and talker. It's and been happy. Oh, it's been wonderful <laughs> for us too. You're coming back. And it's good to see you again, Perry Pardon. We are handing over to the people of Einstein and Gogo. And let me tell you this, because I just saw someone walk into the studio who I bet is on their show, Professor Sharon Lewin, who is the, I think she's CEO, she'll tell us, of the Peter Doherty Institute, one of our world experts on HIV and everything to do with international health, um, is obviously on their show. So stay tuned for that. Otherwise... Um, You'll find everything else they talk about is marvellous. But don't forget about us every Sunday morning, 10am, or on Radio On Demand, or through podcasts and everything else. Thanks, everyone, for listening. We'll see you next week. Have a good einstein go go Cheers, everyone. Bye. But I tell myself that next time I turn on, I will turn on stronger and deeper and more positive. <laughs> This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.